Hello, horror fam, best friends, and ghoulish knights, and welcome to the 10th episode of Murders with Mertens. I am your host, Joe, and this is a podcast about horror, psychological thrillers, cosmic horror, the supernatural, sci-fi horror, body horror, the horror-adjacent scary films in general. Each episode, I sit down with a guest and discuss one of their favorite scary films so we can gush about everything that makes it just so damned cool. Viewers, thank you for tuning in to this fledgling podcast. Uh, you can provide some much-needed support of this little endeavor by subscribing to the channel, liking the video, dropping a comment below to keep the conversation going, and sharing an episode with someone you know who loves that particular film. It's all greatly appreciated. But enough of all that rigmarole. We need to introduce today's guest, Jose Ruckus. Brandon, how the hell are you? Pretty good, man. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Getting to the end of my work week, so to speak, and uh, looking forward to a little time off and uh, glad we could put this thing together. Uh, so for those who don't know, who are you? Um, I am... Most people know me formerly. I was the host of the uh, Wild Aces podcast that was going around. I don't do a lot these days. Uh, I do some sports content here and there. Um, I stream, and uh, I do have a new podcast of my own bouncing around right now called Pop Cultural Studies, which is like a deep dive into some weird pop culture stuff. Like we have an episode about James Cameron's Spider-Man movie that never got made. That's pretty fun. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's Very that's cool. that's Jose Ruckus. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um so yeah, we've been uh we we've talked to each other for a good while on uh you know the socials Mostly and on whatnot. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll say it's fun that we finally were able to put this together because I think we both have quite a bit of love for uh today's feature film. Uh today we're gonna be talking about a real favorite of mine and yours, Mulholland Drive, a 2001 psychological thriller written and directed by David Lynch. Jose Ruckus, what is your history with this film? Um, I have a complicated history with this movie because <laughs> I had actually this. I only saw it this year. Um, oh. yeah, when the uh, the uh, the 4K Criterion Blu-ray that we have right here. When this came out, I saw that you bought it, and I know this is a movie I've seen you talk about just a bunch on Twitter. And so I was like, you know what? I want to watch it in 4K. It's a movie that I've known about for an extremely long time. Um, but very recently, I've been getting really into David Lynch. And um, I'm a Twin Peaks fan for, for like uh, pretty much since I got out of high school. Uh, you're going to hate to hear this, Joe, but that was 10 years ago. Um, yeah, it's, that's fair. Like right around my senior year of high school, I got really into Twin Peaks. I think that was around the time it got put on Netflix. And um, at that point, I had watched, uh, like right after that, I watched Lost Highway. Oh, and, nice. Yeah. And then I watched Fire Walk with me. And I sort of got the impression from that that I was more of a Mike Frost fan than a David Lynch fan. That I thought that those were the elements of Twin Peaks that he had, sort of the mythology stuff and all that kind of thing going on. I thought that that's more what I enjoyed than anything else. But recently, I've been sort of um, getting more into the idea of like surrealist aspects of filmmaking and stuff that maybe not everything that's on the screen has to be like literal interpretation of like what's going on in the plot and stuff. And so mm -hmm. I've been trying more David Lynch films. I recently watched Eraserhead around last oh, nice. year. Really, really liked that. And so I decided to uh, take the dive in with Mulholland Drive this year. And um, I watched it. The night I got the Blu-ray, um, 
then I watched it again that morning, the next morning. <laughs> I, I immediately watched it again, and I think I've seen it now four times this year. I okay. really, really okay. like the movie. I mean, many consider this uh, like his finest work, um, and for good reason. It's it's a hell of a film. Uh, a lot of people consider this one of the best films of not just the aughts, but really the past 20 years, and it came out in 2001. Uh, I, I actually got to see this in the theater in its initial run with a good friend of mine uh, back in undergrad, uh, Brian. Uh, we were both huge Twin Peaks fans. I think he had seen it a little bit prior to me. I got into it in undergrad probably around probably around 2000, 2001. Um, I think whenever it was that the initial like DVD release of the first season came out and it came out without the pilot. Yes. Because there were all these weird rights issues and like different studio on the pilot. I think because they did like a film distribution of it in Europe or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was well, it, weird and fucked up. <laughs> the way that they had made it was like that, um, which is actually a, sort of important because it's the same way Mulholland drive got made, which was that, uh, the initial idea was David Lynch was going to shoot this pilot for a TV show with the keeping the rights to make it a movie in case they didn't pick it up, he could put an ending on it and sell it for rights over there. And I think that's what ended up happening in Europe or whatever was that yeah. they took that pilot and they took on the red room scene from the second episode and just mm -hmm. put that out as a film. Yeah. Yep. And there's like other weird stuff, uh, kind of towards the end of the pilot, uh, the, the, the European film version of it. But yeah, we got totally sucked into the point where I was like probably using Kazaa or something like that to download <laughs> season two episodes. Cause there was no way to see it unless you had like a video store that had the VHS copies. And yeah. Uh, so I was downloading, um, they were recorded, um, off of TV in some Scandinavian country, uh, because there were the subtitles in that language, whatever it had been. Uh, and the little voiceover that comes in during the end credits talking about what's coming up next and, uh, all that other fun stuff. And that was how I finished twin peaks. Um, totally blown away by it. And all of a sudden we saw, you know, on the kind of fledgling, film websites of the time like uh, dark horizons and any cool news uh, information about Mulholland drive and like, okay, this looks dope. Like lost highway. That movie came out when I was a senior in high school, uh, all the stuff with uh, what's his face that played uh, Beretta uh, with the creepy camcorder yeah, and all that. Uh, Robert um, Blake. Yes. Yes. Robert Blake. Um, always found that super cool and creepy. So and weird. Yeah, I'm like, this kind of has that vibe. It feels a little bit like Twin Peaks, like it's leaning heavy into 50s nostalgia, but they're like an L.A. Hollywood lens. Cool, cool. And we went and saw this thing and just totally blown away. Uh, I remember just as soon as there was a DVD uh, release of it, had that. Um, God, probably nearly burned a hole in that over the past 20 years. You Finally got the one got... that had the, uh, the 10 keys to unlocking the film? or Yeah, yeah, the, the little list. Um, yep. Um, which I don't know that they were necessarily that, well, necessary, but, uh, you know. That... I, I feel that they're not super necessary, 
Uh, we'll get into it later, but I feel oh, like sure. a lot of the conc- people people like draw these like huge like this what is what is essentially like a really simple conclusion being like oh, it's yeah. this massive revelation. It's like pretty obvious from oh yeah 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 it's um i think in your first viewing especially if you're not super familiar with david lynch it's uh very easy to be like what the fuck i don't understand what's happening these characters are now suddenly different characters and sure but yeah watching it just another time or two it's like okay this is very very clear what they're trying to say um but yeah, yeah, eventually, you know, nice Criterion edition. Uh, and then I get the news last summer. Oh, yeah, we're going to start finally doing 4K discs. Thank God, because a film like this absolutely just sings in 4K. The, the 4K version, the Criterion 4K edition is so good. Like The pores. One of the, the best pores. movies I own. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's ridiculously good looking. Um. And yeah, this is absolutely a film worth or owning in multiple editions throughout the years for sure. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to see what they do next. I really hope that, uh, you know, well, actually, I, even today, today, as we're recording this lost highways coming out in 4k. Hot damn. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. That's good to hear. Uh, cause I, I really need to revisit that. I've only seen it a handful of times. Um, and the soundtrack is basically what introduced me to Rammstein and, uh, uh, who else? Um, uh, God, I can't remember, but, uh, yeah, it's a fun movie. Uh, I was about to say that, uh, there's this whole thing about this, like remastering of, uh, Inland Empire, which was his, you know, most recent film from yeah. like about Oh five or Oh six, yeah, like 10 years since it came out. almost. Yeah. Very long time. And there was a Blu-ray edition of it once it is long out of print. And I, I unfortunately read some not great sounding things about how the restoration is handling this. It's using a lot of AI to kind of redo things and it really changes the look and not in a great way. Cause this film is sort of a time capsule of that era when people were just getting into using uh, digital camcorders to shoot feature films. And it has such a specific look and uh, God, the, the article or thread or whatever it was that I was reading, um, they were fairly upset about it just from a standpoint of, you know, somebody going back and just fundamentally changing what their film originally was, you know, just doesn't sit well with them. And I'm like, yes and no with that. I mean, we've certainly had, um, you know, the special editions of Star Wars, for example, that have, you know, helped to ruin my childhood. But, um, you know, it, some stuff is for the better. Like we finally get Darth Vader's lightsaber in red in that one scene in, uh, you know, a new hope. But, uh, yeah, um, we'll see how that goes because I just want an edition of inland empire that I can buy and consume because yeah, that, I've never seen that one. Um, it, it's, it's a movie that's interesting to me. I've heard like a lot of people, like I've heard like David Lynch fans talk about how they don't like that movie. Like it's such like, it's a very different kind of film. And uh, I, yeah. so yeah, I would love to see like, um, you know, Criterion just picked up Lost Highway and um, they have, you know, some other David Lynch films. I would really like to see them do a full on director approved restoration of that so I could finally like watch yeah. it. 
and whatever this you know AI method that they're using is, uh, apparently it is with his approval. So, it, you know, I, I'm very curious to see what kind of Frankenstein's monster this ends up being. Uh, I just want to be able to watch this film again because I've only really seen it the first time. Um, but I remember not liking it as well as a lot of other David Lynch. And I think it's because it leans into how, I guess the tone of a lot of his later movies is a lot, almost like, I don't want to call it mean spirited, but it is, you know, kind of dark and just not necessarily the fun and quirky of a lot of his earlier stuff. Yeah. Um, but which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely a different tone from, you know, what a lot of fans of say twin peaks would enjoy out of David Lynch or yeah. uh, blue velvet even. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, fucking Mulholland drive, uh, you know, not to spin off into just the David Lynch, uh, you know, pantheon here in general talk about like a single David Lynch movie because he reuses so many elements in each film. There's so well, much mean, crossover and stuff. It's like all the blue, all the, the blue, you know, the, the flashing curtains. lights. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And his regular stable of actors, which, you know, we'll definitely get to as we yep. talk about this. Um, I, I think we should probably jump in here. Uh, yeah. the, the, this film, uh, it starts and uh, is this a gap ad circa, you know, <laughs> 1998, 99, something like that? Because it certainly feels like one. We got this uh, odd little uh, dance number. Um, I don't know, kind of swing music type stuff going on. And yeah, it's, it's put together super weird, too, because like, it's yeah, this weird, like kind of like almost rippling purple color with like mm -hmm. these silhouettes in the background. Yeah, they're and, overlaid on top of each other. It's almost like an early uh, iPod ad mixed up yeah. with the old Gap ads for khakis. Yeah. Um, it's strange. And it ends with this kind of distorted image of uh, Naomi Watts character. Betty, uh, all dada, dolled up in a sparkly dress, and she's got this old cover couple with her, and they're just kind of beaming at the camera, and that's it. And I, yeah. I have thoughts as far as what's going on there uh, for later, but I, I hate to spoil too much early on. Um, and then there's this fun little POV shot of somebody just kind of crawling into bed and getting close to the pillow, and then darkness once again uh we don't want to get into too much but there's just very interesting foreshadowing that's going on with all this right yeah and it's it's one of those things like the first time you watch it you forget about this even happening by the yeah. time you get to the end yeah. of the movie yeah absolutely it's um it's important for sure but yeah. uh yeah yeah it's uh yeah, absolutely. One of those things you're going to forget it by the time you get to the end. Uh, and then we get our titles and one of the best Angelo Bettelamenti themes, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, I love the score in this film so much, and I think it borrows a lot from Twin Peaks, but, uh, you know, in all the kind of best ways. Uh, it's yeah, just it's very, very good. Mm -hmm. The guy knows since and um, he has a lot of fun with them. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, you get credits and kind of the winding tracking shot of the limo driving, uh, along Mulholland drive. 
Uh, I, I just learned this fact for the very first time. The license plate is uh, the plate from Larry David's vehicle on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Real. Oh, yeah, that, that that license plate gets like reused a lot, doesn't it? That's like, funny. It's like it's a prop license plate That's that like really bounces around a lot. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and, you know, we finally get through the credits and you're seeing all these names and it's like, oh, wow, I know that person. I can't wait to see them show up for the one minute that they're in this film. Right. Some of these people just come and go and they are maybe the a line or two. Especially. Yes. And, oh, yeah. Um, so we uh, move to the inside of the limo and it's uh, Laura Haring's character and they stop and um, oh shit, this, this doesn't look good. And then these crazy teenagers driving like assholes come out of the woodwork and uh, well, crash into the car. And she gets a lucky break because uh, she was about to get off there. She <laughs> stumbles out of the wreckage and somehow just... survives the car crash. The, oh yes. Um, the two, the, the other car of the kids racing does not care that they just saw a head on collision. They just no, they don't come back. Nothing. No, <laughs> nope. They just, they keep on moving it. it yeah. 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 That, it's a whole thing. Um, she kind of stumbles out very clearly kind of dazed and disoriented. Uh, and she's bleeding a little bit and decides I'm just going to walk down the hill from Mulholland drive. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. and she does, uh, all the way to sunset Boulevard. And I, I don't have a great concept of geography in LA, but I took a look at a map and, you know, it's at least a good as the crow flies mile, mile and a half, two miles, something like that in heels down a hill through <laughs> all sorts of yeah. brush and so on It's uh, with it's a concussion. Strange. Yeah. Very much but, concussed. Oh yeah. But you know, she makes it and uh, she gets a little freaked out by this couple piling out of uh, a doorway uh, and she goes to take a little nap under a bush. Yep. Like you do. Yeah. Like you do. Uh, as she's walking along though, there are some amazingly beautiful shots that I never really caught. Uh, there's this one where she's kind of in silhouette walking along and you've got the palm trees and yeah. Yeah. It, oh, God. It's this is a really fun film and I'm just not going to stop gushing about a lot of this. And then uh, to your uh, earlier comment, we cut to the detectives and all the crew kind of surveying the crash site. And it's Robert Forrester and the dude from A Simple Plan whose name I can't remember. Um, But uh, this is something that I wanted to bring up uh, as far as just. David Lynch's use of actors and everything. So the revival of Twin Peaks, which I know a lot of people had, you know, a few issues with because it was all kind of the dark, mean kind of sinister yeah, aspects of the show. Finished it. So <gasps> I need to go back. I need to go back and watch it. I got like halfway through it and mm-hmm. I was just like, I don't, I'm just tired, man. You know, that's fair because I don't think it was what a lot of people were expecting. They really wanted it. It absolutely was not what I was expecting. Yeah, it was definitely new David Lynch and not old David Lynch for sure. But uh, so many of the people that came back for that third season died that year or after, including Robert Forrester and Mm -hmm. the dude from A Simple Plan. Um, It's just kind of sad, you know, maybe 
don't come back to a David Lynch show nearly 30 <laughs> years later. I don't know. Um, but you know, they have their little back and forth about, yeah, there's probably somebody else who is here and then we never see them again. And it's like the most TV pilot thing ever of introducing some characters that seem like they might be important. And eh, I, I guess we're just never going to see them again. Yeah. We haven't actually touched on that yet, but, um, Mulholland Drive, like initially, like the very kernel of the idea was it was going to be a Twin Peaks spinoff. And so um, that kind of fell apart, but they kept the name. And uh, this was shot as a TV pilot. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the stuff that you see in the, the beginning of the movie, especially like the introduction. Yeah, like the, the first detective. hour and a half or so it's, is essentially the pilot. Jump a little head into the plot. Like the, the, the pilot ends when they find the body. That's okay. where the cutoff is. And then essentially everything after that, David Lynch came up with in like a day, which is mm. insane. Um, well, you know, Studio Canal gives you $7 million to complete yeah. it. You'll come up with stuff fast enough. Yeah, th- there's an um, interview with him on the Criterion Blu-ray where he um, he says like the day he got the green light, he got it sooner than he expected. And he's like, I had no ideas. I had no idea what to do. So like he did like a meditation because he's super into like transcendental yeah, meditation or yeah. whatever. And he's like, I had the like the entire idea for the rest of the movie that night meditating. It's like, that's wild. But um, yeah, there, there's also there's a deleted scene with these um, with the detectives. That, oh, fun. I got to check that out. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure what's going on in it and like what it's supposed to mean or like like plot wise. But yeah, there's there's one little extra bonus scene that you can watch with them. Damn. Fine cool. Coffee. Oh, you know it. Um, yeah. So we, we cut back to um well, this apartment uh, complex and uh, Laura Haring's character wakes up when she hears, you know, a door open and shut. And it's this lady who's obviously going on a trip and this cabbie who's having the worst time ever handling all the luggage and getting it into the trunk and everything. He nearly falls in himself. But she takes this opportunity to uh, get out from under the bush and run into an apartment door that's clearly left open because if you are more than willing to leave most of your bags in an open taxi cab in LA, you're also the kind of person who's going to leave your front door wide open too. Yeah. 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 Like you do. Um, so yes, uh, this lady goes back into the apartment looking for some keys and clearly does not see this lady who's underneath the table that would have been in her eyeline as she walks towards the keys, but whatever, that doesn't matter (laughs) because it's still just a fun set of shots. And yeah, we, we, we keep going from here. Uh, Another little nap this time uh, under a table Um, again, clearly concussed. Uh, And then from here we move on to Winkies and one of the most terrifying scenes yeah. In any David Lynch property. Um, yeah, this is definitely one of those films that's more like thriller than it is straight up horror film. But uh, it's moments like these. Yeah, there are like three sequences in the movie that are like genuinely really scary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you've got this. You've got the basically the very end of the film. Um yeah, what's your uh, other one there? I, I, would, I would say when they find the body. I, that, yeah. That, really, that freaked that's, me out the first time. 
that's pretty horrific. Yeah. Especially uh, by the time they come around the corner and see the face. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's a lot. So Winkies, which is kind of a takeoff on Denny's because I guess they couldn't get the rights at the time. They basically all but copied the logo and you just get these couple of guys having breakfast. And the one wants to tell the other guy about, uh, you know, the dream that he has been having. And well, it's pretty horrible. Um, you know, there's a man in back of this place and he's scaring the shit out of me. And I can see him through the wall. Yeah. And I hope that I don't see that face ever outside of a dream. OK, well, hey, let's go check it out because, you know, that 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 won't be a bad idea. So, you know, these guys, uh, the, the one guy with the super thick eyebrows is a famous character actor whose name I can never remember, but he's in yeah, like everything right yeah um so they you know make their way beyond uh or behind the uh the diner and it's almost like they're reusing the same camera shot of moving forward in the way that it seems to take forever but it really helps to build the dread that by the time they make it to the part you know of this alleyway where they dump to go around the wall you're really yes. expecting it. And then it just kind of like it's uh, part of what scares me with it is it's the motion that it makes. It's like this, like it's fast and slow at the same time, but the head just like slides mm-hmm. out. Right. Uh, it's so weird. And it's terrifying. You have this, you know, probably homeless person just covered in grime with just this terrifying face just pop into the camera and the dude that's been dreaming about this uh, essentially dies of fright. Yep. Yep. And it's one of these non sequitur scenes where you like you have no idea what's actually going on at this point in your first viewing. It's like, I this is this just a collection of weird shit is, you know, I mean, great if it is, but I, I'd love it if it has some you know importance to the plot. Oh, it's but so it does. Weird. Yeah. It's yeah. So weird. Um. And from here, oh, and important message uh, that they're trying to tell on this point, uh, just, you know, stay away from the alley behind a Winkies. Yeah. You know, um, that's yeah, that's what we're supposed to take away. Uh, And then we get this odd confluence of phone calls, uh, basically trying to figure out where um, I guess the lady from the limo has gone. Um, it's all this back and forth and these weird phones with lights, you know, just keeping them warm or something. I don't know. Um, and is it here where we're introduced to Mr. Roke? We don't know that it's him at the time, but yeah, it is. Okay. He, he makes the call to say like the girl's missing calls the other guy and that guy calls the phone. We never see again. And then that phone calls the phone with the red lampshade. Right. That we're supposed to be paying attention to because, um, well, yeah, we'll get back to that. Um, but yes, uh, from here, from here. Oh, where are we? From the red lampshade, that's when she oh comes off the airplane, right? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. Betty and the creepy old folks, um, <laughs> and she is such the plucky ingenue, uh, you know, just wide eyed and ready to take on Hollywood. 
And it's very clear that she just met these people on the plane. And they're those people that when you're on a plane, they're having a conversation through the entire flight. And it's clear that they've just met each other and you're just trying to watch a stupid movie on your phone or whatever. And it's really irritating, but they are absolutely those people. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, uh, they make their way outside. They say their goodbyes and, uh, you know, Betty gets picked up by a taxi and she heads off to her aunt's place. The dialogue in this scene is like, super obviously 80 yard in and it's like really fake and like intentionally so like it's something mm-hmm. that you can't not notice how like the words aren't really matching up with their mouths at all um yep you can read it's... some meaning into that but it's also just like david lynch weirdness yeah yeah a little bit you know she takes off in her taxi they take off in a limo with these Super wide, stick your fingers in your mouth and show all of your teeth grins. Um, so yeah, there's something going on with them. Not sure what yet, but uh, then I think we basically get right to her aunt's apartment from here. Uh, and we get Coco and a close up of dog shit. Um, this is one of the things that ABC really did not like about the pilot. Yeah, the the extreme Uh, focus on dog shit. Can't imagine why you can you can ask for that to be cut out uh i don't think it's you could it's you know it's maybe that was a deal breaker on lynch's part i don't know um but uh coco's great it's uh legendary ann miller she's been in you know movies since time immemorial and this was her final role um but the dialogue in this scene the sincerity behind it is so overwhelming just how saccharine it is with their introduction to each other and so on. And, you know, ultimately it it just lends to the dreamlike quality of what this film ultimately is, of course. And also like, especially with Ann Miller being there and stuff, there's a, there's a lot of like, you know, like like fifties nostalgia throwbacks to old classic era Hollywood and stuff. And sort of that acting and writing style is is kind of what you're getting. Yeah, when you would get the um, super over-the-top enunciation of kind of like East Coast socialite who has that almost almost English accent, but it's not, that you know, Catherine like Madonna. Hepburn. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Madonna's accent that she sort of developed after she, you know, grew up in Bay City, yeah. Michigan. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, so she has shown her aunt's apartment and it is a badass apartment. It is so cool with all the old woodwork and everything. And I know that's what they were going for. It's kind of the old Hollywood style of uh, dwelling. Um, And it's gorgeous. Um, You know, there's yeah. Uh, So yeah, Coco leaves the key. She explores the place and she comes to the bedroom and finds the dress and the shoes and everything on the floor. And she's like, okay, that's weird. And then gets all perky again as she goes into the bathroom only to realize there's a naked lady in the shower. Yep. And she doesn't seem to think anything weird about that. Yeah. Or weird about just opening the door to say hello. Also weird. Like she sees that there's a person in there and then she doesn't realize that there's a person in there until she opens the door. It's a very strange scene. 
Yes, yes. Um, but you know, they have a little bit of a conversation. Um, you know, the uh, Laura Harding's character um is clearly freaked out. You know, I mean, somebody just opened the door on you while you were trying to take a shower. So I, you know, I, I get that. But also, you know, she understands that she broke into this place and she's kind of in hiding and she has no idea what the fuck is going on with her herself at the moment. So um, they kind of part ways for a little bit. And um, oh, there is the mention that there was a car accident. And yeah, I understand. I saw the dress. It's it's a. Maybe weird react must have been like bloody or maybe I maybe I, I don't know it's also she can't remember her name is really like although she doesn't really say so, as much it, only That's that true. uh betty asks her what her name is and then quickly backpedals and says uh you know what i'm gonna let you get back to that we'll we'll talk when you're done and um yeah. Yeah, and wow, Betty has assumed way too much uh, at this point because she thinks that uh, this lady is her aunt's friend that she just didn't know was going to be there. Yeah. And at this point, um, Laura Haring is like, okay, I got to come up with something. And it's the cliche of I'm going to get the name off of the poster and that's my name because she sees a poster in the bathroom for a Rita Hayworth movie and just goes with Rita, which yep. it, it works. It works. <laughs> um, so they meet again, uh, back in the bedroom and, um, Rita just needs some fucking sleep. You know, those first couple of cat naps didn't do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she checks out you know, her head and there's this horrible fucking bruise up there. And, you know, it's like, oh, you, you shouldn't sleep if you have a concussion. Yes, we, we get that, Betty. You know, it, she she's slept for like two days straight now. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, at least she's still alive. Uh, but, you know, she covers up with the road and decides, OK, I'm just going to let her sleep. And we cut from here to um, Ryan Entertainment and the Castigliani brothers. Just, just this part. <laughs> just rips um the this is the scene where the first time i watched it, i was like okay this is weird it's very like lots of scenes are happening uh-huh. i don't know this was the first scene where i was like what the fuck is going on like yeah i can't, this is a weird one i can't remember how far we are into the film at this point but it's very clear it's like okay we're just continuing to introduce the characters yeah. that will be part of this story and so on but yeah, if, if this is like a good 25, 30 minutes into the film, you need to stop introducing characters unless you're this film. Um, but yeah, we, we've got a very young Justin Thoreau uh, and a bunch of old dudes sitting around a boardroom table and they're waiting on a couple of guys, um, the Castigliani brothers, who are clearly mobsters. Um, and there's something to do with the casting of the lead actress of mm-hmm. uh, Adam Justin Thoreau's character's uh, movie. And it, we we get um, the conversation about uh, how they were going to serve them an espresso and they had problems with that before. And, you know, I don't know how hard, hard it is to make a tiny cup of espresso, but apparently it's very difficult for Angelo Bettelamenti's character. Uh, of course, the Castigliani brothers played by the composer of the film, Angelo Bettelamenti and Dan motherfucking Hedea. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
badass. Uh, there's such a weird couple of dudes, and it's great. Pulls out this envelope. Headshot comes out. This is the girl, which this will come back. It's said four different times in this scene and, and multiple get, uh, times throughout the very, rest of the film. Very important close up of the name of the girl. Mm-hmm. Camilla Rhodes. Yeah, played by Melissa George in this part of the film, uh, who later goes on to be uh, an absolutely horrible character in Alias, which also guest starred uh, Justin Theroux at one point or another. I I fucking love that show. I miss it. Um, (laughs) But uh, yes. um, What do you mean? This is the girl. Essentially telling him without telling him, yes, this is who you are going to cast as the lead actress. and it's in the middle of all of this conversation that the espresso is served and um, Angelo asks for a napkin can barely get it out. The guy's got to lean in and ask again. He takes a sip of this thing and has to spit it all out into this nas- this napkin. Is, this and, is what I was talking about. This is where it gets weird for me. And I was like, Oh, okay, oh I'm yeah. watching a David Lynch film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, I think when I first saw this as well, I was just, more aware of just how weird he tends to get in general. And, you know, it, yes, it just, it, it's like, okay, I'm not getting the answer I want. And therefore I just need to get this all out of my system. That very violent final wipe with the napkin. And there's just screaming that ends with Dan Hedaya and uh, Angelo Bettelamenti yeah, just repeating at each other. Yeah. This is the girl. And okay. Guess that's it. Uh, Adam goes to leave. Um, I have a he, read on the coffee scene. If oh, you want. please, please. I, I, last night I had a realization while watching. It. I think I know why it's there. Um, much like with the casting of the actress in the movie, the quality of the coffee does not matter to the character. It's it's not specifically what he wants, so they reject it. It's not about the quality of the actress that they want for the movie. They want this specific person. I think that's that's what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I can I I can absolutely see that. Um yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, then we get a scene that is basically just commentary, I guess, on Jack Nicholson smashing the shit out of somebody's car with a golf club, because that's what Adam Kesher does to the Castigliani brothers limo. Uh, and then jets off in his tiny little uh, Porsche Boxster. Um that apparently was all the rage back in about 2000, 2001. Yeah. It's okay. It's a very um, hot shot director car. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. So essentially Adam pisses off the mob. Um Rita Smart. continues to sleep. Oh yeah, yeah. Smart. Good move. Um Rita continues to sleep, and we go right from just a shot of her sleeping to Mr. Roke. Uh, again, uh, played by Mike Anderson, uh, the little man from another place in Twin Peaks, who was fitted with prosthetic prosthetic arms and legs to yeah. you know give him this weird, unnatural appearance of being a kind of a full bodied man, uh, but with, with a very, a very small, small head. head. Um, 
And he has barely any lines in the movie, but he's got such a presence. Um, I think didn't he have kind of a falling out with David Lynch after this? That's why he's not in the return is because they had some disagreement. Um, I don't know totally the details of it. Yeah, but they don't don't work together anymore. But uh, this character, this this thing is so weird because there's um, there's the weird glass wall between them that has yeah, to be with like the speaker in it with the speaker and um the blue lamp behind him in this like weird beige room it's such like i love the set design david lynch uses it looks it looks somehow both really normal and really off-putting yeah yeah absolutely it's um yeah there's yeah, just, just some guy standing behind him. Oh yeah. It's his attendant, of course. You know, his manservant. Um you know, it's it's totally normal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, yeah, it's just just the conversation about how well we're gonna shut down the movie now, I guess. And yep. I, I, I yeah, I guess uh Roke is I guess at least some kind of a head of this, you know, faction of the mob in LA whatever yeah, but we cut it's, it's this weird like uh like the the hollywood machine and mr roke is like the head of that maybe yeah. i mean at the end of the day this film is very much commentary on you know living and working in la and hollywood yeah. you know in general and totally makes sense and now we move on to the best hitman ever <laughs> we get joe who very much has a look that's kind of modeled after David Bowie. Um, and he's got mo- different colored eyes. Yeah, heterochromia, and he's got you know the Union Jack T-shirt and everything, and um, it's just this kind of odd little back and forth conversation of a couple of guys catching up. Um, and they're yeah, talking just... about a car accident mm-hmm. and this this crazy car accident. Yeah. Yep, and. Uh, that's the book, right? It's, you know, a little bit of a MacGuffin here. You know, the book isn't really as important as the fact that the book exists. Right. Um, and once he gets confirmation that that's what he's looking for, he just, you know, pops his friend in the head and there's this fun little close up of the guy's hair with the yeah, blood on it. So weird of it. It looks like something out of a nine inch nails video. Yeah, um, you know, definitely like um, downward spiral era. Um, but yeah, um, so he's, you know, going to kind of cover up the action. And he wipes the gun down, puts it in the guy's hand, tries to put the finger on the trigger and pops off another round through the wall into the neighboring office. And he hears a yelp from next door. Oh, shit. Goes next door, finds this woman who's clearly injured, not entirely certain what happened to her because of, you know, just the fact real bad. Yeah. She got shot in the ass essentially. And there is, well, let's be fair, quite a bit of ass to absorb that shot. Um, and he comes in close, like he's going to help her, but then tries to take her out, but she kind of turns the tables on him a little bit and they have their little fight and she's crazy loud. 
And, you know, she's really fighting for her life. And I, I got to give her props for that because, I mean, you goddamn well better. Um, but he manages to drag her out into the hallway, glances down the hall, and there's the janitor with the vacuum cleaner just yep. standing silently. Hey, man, you got to come here and help me. You got to help make a phone call. I, I can't do everything. And somehow this dumbass comes along to help him. Uh, he offs the lady from the neighboring office. The guy comes in, just stands there. He pops him, drabs him back inside. Of course, the vacuum cleaner has turned on after he pops the guy. And he's like, well, I, I guess I'll just shoot the vacuum cleaner to turn it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It just continues to spiral for this guy because, of course, the thing, you know, produces a ton of smoke and the fire alarm in the building goes off. I got to get out of here. It's so loud. It's so funny. Oh, God. It's just one of the best comedic scenes in this film. This guy cannot catch a break. And I. I, Yeah. And so it's it's this movie does like everything so well because it has like these comedy scenes here it has Mm -hmm. these extremely frightening scenes yeah it's Um, it's a lot of little vignettes at this yeah like like you get the full spectrum of like entertainment with this movie because they're bouncing around doing all kinds of stuff yep and still really just introducing characters at this point yep um but that's okay It, it will add up to something eventually uh so rita finally wakes up and she has no idea who she is, but they decide to, you know, look in her purse and they find a shit ton of cash and a funky blue key. And, you know, what are we going to do? We're all, you know, they just cut from here to the hitman again and a buddy shaking down a working girl. And it's a very uncomfortable scene. She's got a horrible bruise in the shape of a handprint on her arm. So she was. Yep clearly used and abused and i think it's right after this that we learned that adam is um yeah it's adam's kind of fucked car, the, uh, his assistant calls him and lets him mm-hmm. know that they've shut down the movie completely um mm-hmm. she wants him to come try to figure Fix out everything. something to do but he yeah but he's like home. yeah i'm just gonna go home i'm gonna go yeah. home um And then we cut back to uh, Rita and Betty, and this is where we get the Mulholland Drive, Mulholland Drive, Mulholland Drive. Uh, That's where I was going. (laughs) And again, like super, like over the top, sincere dialogue. And, uh, you know, we should just come right out and say it. You know, this this is Betty uh, continuing to just try to be like the best version of herself. This is like her dream of who she should be and who she could be. And she's again, going to be the plucky ingenue and she's going to figure out the mystery and yep. um, So they're going to Scooby do this shit. Um, (laughs) And boy, they certainly try. Um, Let's see here. Is oh, this where they yes. come up with the idea to to make the phone call? Yeah, I think that's where they talk about they're going to do it. They don't quite do it yet because we cut back to Adam arriving at home. Mm-hmm. And 
He sees the truck from the pool guy and finally gets into the bedroom and it's well, Billy Ray he, motherfucking he Cyrus. The, he sees the truck from the pool boy, walks in, looks at the pool. There is no, there's pool nobody boy. there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yes. Um, and he opens the bedroom door and there's his wife and Billy Ray Cyrus uh, in the bed. And they, they've clearly heard him coming in because they're just kind of waiting for him at this point. And what does Billy Ray Cyrus say to him? Just forgot. Just forget you saw anything. It's better that way. I love Billy Ray's character in this. Yeah. Like, Gene. He's so, he's so like weirdly sincere like he actually like he like he seems to like sort of he's like dude just like i think he feels bad you know like, i think like, he's... there's nothing that we can really like do about it man it's yeah. happened like it's better for you to just like not freak <laughs> out about it it's you know i uh i will be supportive in your cuckolding um <laughs> i will be also, that I shoulder noticed, i noticed that like on the table next to him there's like flowers and a bottle of wine and stuff so he's like yep. really a romance in his wife too yeah yeah um <laughs> and you know we we get their little uh their fight uh as you know, his he's wife like, seems to he, be mad at him for her yes. cheating on him. Yes. Yes. And so he just has a complete mental breakdown, opens up the dresser drawer, grabs her jewelry box and goes, finds a can of paint to go dump all over it. And, you know, he gets a little handsy with her and, you know, he's, he's not doing well, but, uh, Billy Ray, you know, makes the very important comment, you know, that's no way to treat your wife. I don't care what she done. <laughs> after he slugs him and uh you know she gets billy ray to throw him outside of the house he has this great little slide across the patio stones yeah. um and she just kind of drives off covered in paint um <laughs> we i think we cut back to uh betty and rita and this is where they're uh hiding the cash along with the key in that hat box and they decide to go to you know, find a payphone at this point, I think. Um, and uh, they make their call and uh, you know, talk to a cop that works in traffic. And, um, you know, he starts to ask too many questions and Betty hangs up in a panic and they're like, OK, there was an accident. Yes, this is all making sense. Let's grab a newspaper. Let's get some coffee. Let's figure it out. And here's where we're introduced to Diane, the waitress. We're back at the uh, Winkies. Mm-hmm. The same Winkies from the horrible man behind the place situation. Um, I'm just going to keep calling him the man behind the place because it kind of works like the little man from another place. Um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. um, and Diane, they really fixate on the name on her name tag. And Betty even repeats the name. Um, so yeah, they can't find anything in the paper they you know drink their coffee do their thing um let's see here oh and we cut back to adam's house and this is where we get the couple of mob guys that are looking for him and i love this scene yeah adam kesher (laughs) adam kesher just over and over again i the way that she after he just kind of Cast her aside. You hear her hit something. There is a very audible thunk 
and she just climbs right up on top of him. She's got her leg over his shoulder. She's trying to strangle him. And you see his fist just come together and clobber her. Well, first, uh, Billy Ray comes out and tries oh, to yeah, fight yeah, him. Yeah. And he just like one punches Billy Ray Cyrus and then punches the girl on his back. It's so funny. And it continues with the Adam Kesher. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's like a robot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love how uh, Billy Ray's gene tries to be, you know, the great big man who's going to take this guy out. And like you said, one punch and he is yeah. down. And and you hear her cry out, Gene! <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good. Um, and then Gene's on the ground. And... Now we get to the hotel that Adam's going to, and uh, we're introduced to Cookie, um, the manager of the hotel, who is the boat captain from uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It's, you know, uh, I was watching that for in review uh, a few weeks back, and um, I'm like, this guy looks really familiar. And so I'm on IMDb, and I'm like, Oh shit! From Mulholland Drive. Okay, With big white mustache. Super big mustache. It basically, give me about another ten, fifteen years, and let me rock the dad stash, and that will be my mustache. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, let's see here. Adam's on the phone with his assistant. And this is where we finally see her. I, I can't remember the character's name, but uh, she is maybe just a little too friendly. She obviously would like to comfort Adam in his time of need, but uh, yeah, he's good. And this is where she introduces the idea of the cowboy, um, how he's supposed to drive up to the um, you know top of this one particular hill and there's going to be a corral and adam is just not taking it seriously you know you know should i bring my 10 gallon hat and six shooters and uh what does he say to her uh after she makes oh, her yeah. final offer get along little doggy yeah. um yeah yeah he's just going to continue to make fun of the idea that there is a guy called the cowboy um but um yeah then I think we get Louise here at the apartment complex. Now you've that seen fire. Great. You've seen fire walk with me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. How much did this lady remind you of the lady from the trailer park with the water bottle oh. over her black eye? I didn't think about it, but yeah, even though no, it's, I, totally I don't think it, it's yeah. the same actress or anything like that, but it's the same idea of, you know, kind of somebody coming to check things out because there's something not right. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it's it's it, such a weird scene. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And she's got kind of this. Um, oh, what's her face from uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac? Um, Stevie Nicks. Yeah. She's got a very Stevie Nicks vibe, right? Yeah. She, she's wearing like a shawl over uh -huh. her head. It's. There's so much, so much about this scene that's so weird because she keeps saying like she told me. We don't know who that is. She just says mm -hmm. something's wrong. Somebody's in trouble. Mm -hmm, so weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and just again, much foreshadowing and all that. Um, so then we get Adam 
driving up the hill to meet the cowboy and he's kind of like snickering to himself as he's driving like <laughs> fucking cowboy blah 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 and he gets up there and we get you know the iconic david lynch flickering lights and this dude just like walks sound that he loves. yep yep and this dude just walks out of the shadows and he he's a motherfucking cowboy all right um i i, I kind of you know low-key want this guy's coat too it is a badass old coat apparently it's the, those are the guys actual clothes that he owns but they are the clothing of tom nix you know tom mixes uh he's like the original cowboy actor from hollywood okay he's the guy he's the guy who like set john wayne up as a cowboy actor and stuff and he was like actually a cowboy too like he's a oh, dude who's nice. just like was a cowboy, had all these skills, and was like, wouldn't it be cool if like you filmed me doing this stuff? Okay. Yeah. But it is a badass coat, and he's got his fucking hat and his kerchief Giant and hat. all that. Yep, yep. And uh, he basically lays it out for him. Um, that, uh, well, no, no. They they start with a little bit of beating around the bush, you know. Like, lovely like evening. My favorite line in the movie where he goes, um, "A man's attitude goes a long way in determining how his life will be." That's something you might agree with. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Now is that now? Do you actually agree with what I said, or did you just say that because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Like the way the conversation is like written mm-hmm. out and the way he delivers it, I love this scene so much. Yeah, you you just you feel just a little bit by little bit how deadly serious this person actually is, and maybe you shouldn't be fucking with him just because of his cowboy getup. Um, yeah, Adam even pauses for a little bit as he has to respond to that question. And, you know, he makes sure to answer in a correct way there. But um, and then, you know, he, he asks him to, you know, kind of think about his situation. <laughs> All right. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. <laughs> you're too busy being a smart Alec. <laughs> I love it. This is great back and forth, but essentially the gist of this conversation is you're going to go back to work tomorrow. They're going to show you this woman, Camilla Rhodes. You're going to say, yep, this is the girl. Uh, this is the fifth time that the phrase is said in the film, by the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, you're going to do all this. And, you know, if, um, if you do right, you're going to see me one more time. If you do bad, you're going to see me. Two more times. Good night. Walks off into the shadows. And then the light just flickers out. Yep. It's so, so weird. It's so good. Like every, every bit about this scene is like just perfect. Like the, uh, how many drivers does a buggy have? Yeah. I'm driving this buggy. And if you change your attitude, you can ride along with me. Yes. Yes, yes, it's so good. Um, God, what was the other thing? I, I just had something else to say about it, and I, I'm just totally spacing on it, just basking in the glory of the coolness of the scene here. But yeah, and then uh, we kind of cut from here to um, the line reading between uh, Betty and Rita, uh, which starts off 
almost with the feeling of Betty casting Rita out, but then you see she's holding, you know, pages in her hand. So it's very clear. Okay. Because the line reading has the same sincerity that Betty brings to everything that she has to say. Right. Um, and it's like this horribly trite, you know, dad's best friend, you know, having an affair with his daughter type of scenario bullshit TV movie thing. And, um, you know, they kind of laugh about how shitty and trite it all is. Um, but it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, especially like when you see it the first time, like in this scene, you're like, this is so bad. And their acting is really bad. And like, you get, you get the impression that Betty's not a very good actress from this scene here. Mm-hmm. which obviously is, is we're going to see a little bit different later. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think it's just, it plays this way in this moment too, because her character isn't taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, but, there's also a line here that's like somewhat related to something happens later where she says like, uh, you came back or whatever, which gets repeated oh, again yep. later on. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, we get a knock on the door from Coco because guess what? Betty's aunt called. She don't know who Rita is. Oh, shit. And Betty's like trying to be the smooth teenager, um, you know, telling their parents that, you know, they're just that that pot's not theirs. She's holding it for a friend. Right. Um <laughs> But yeah, just trying to explain to Coco that you no, know, Rita's a friend of hers. It wasn't her yeah. aunt's friend. Um, but Coco's not buying it. Uh, what did she call uh what Betty's telling her? A load of horse pucky. Um Okay. Uh, that may be the first and only time that I've heard uh horse shit referred to like that, but that's cool. Written for TV. It was written for TV. That that's fair. That's fair. There's so much of this pilot that just couldn't play on ABC. Um maybe on NBC with Hannibal. I don't know. I think he could have gotten <laughs> away with that, but uh but yeah, not on ABC, especially not in 2000, 2001. Um so then we get uh Betty running off to our audition and we get this great line don't drink all the coke <laughs> sure what whatever <laughs> but i love it still uh and it's audition time it's again the 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 lovely score for this film you know the main theme and uh i think it's paramount pictures where they filmed the exterior it is uh, the it, gate they, they're not allowed to show the paramount logo but you That's can go under that and show the gate uh, and it's the, and it's the um it's the sh- essentially the same shot from the movie sunset boulevard and the car from sunset boulevard is there and obviously <laughs> earlier they live on sunset boulevard it's mm-hmm. there's the big homage it's one of david lynch's favorite movies and there's a lot of yeah that. oh and it totally makes sense because that is such a classic billy wilder film and yeah. all about many many themes that are present in this yeah. movie as well yeah, and even with um, like the name of the movie sunset boulevard mulholland drive it is yes. sort of like what if david lynch did that movie it would be yes, really weird made it even darker than when andrew lloyd weber decided to turn it into a musical Yep. Um, 
But uh, yeah, um, Betty is introduced to all these people in this uh, audition for this shitty made for TV movie, because that's what I'm going to keep referring to it as, because that's what I think it is. Um, And it's audition time and they just crank out the scene and holy shit, she is so much better actor than you ever would have expected from the line reading before. And it's super uncomfortable and super creepy. And she just puts it all out there. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really good scene. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, the the director is like not paying attention at all for some reason. Yeah. I, I find it really off putting and I'm sure I'm supposed to, but um, yeah, he, he has to keep, they keep reminding him ultimately. Yeah to interject he doesn't care at all he's very Um, checked out yeah but like everybody else in the room is just like totally blown away by it yep and uh yeah um also the the scene partner for this who's like the most like george hamilton type of uh you know incredibly dark tan uh just impossibly white teeth and hair um but uh yeah, the, I'm curious if the casting director who's in this scene, uh, who takes her off to Adam's film set, if she's supposed to be in any way based on um, the the frequent casting director of David Lynch films, uh, Joanna Ray. I, I would love to have an answer to that. Um, I don't know. I suppose I could research it sometime. Yeah, just just a little curiosity. Um. And yeah, they uh, drag her off to uh, Adam's film set where he's, things are back up and running. He's continuing to audition for the lead actress. And, uh, you know, you get this little, uh, you know, 50s Connie Stevens son with uh, these, you know, overly done up people lip syncing and he's just chain smoking and. Betty just can't believe how cool it all is. The like the look on her face obviously says. Um and this audition wraps up. Adam talks with the actress. Um they have this great back and forth. And okay, who's next? Um Camilla Rhodes. And he does this little pause, lights his new cigarette from his old cigarette, and all right. And she starts her little son. It's Melissa George. Um, and he asks for his, I can't remember if the guy's his manager or if I think he's it's one the of manager. the guys. It's either it's him he, or he's, he's one the of the guy guys. He's the guy the meeting yeah. earlier and then they use, okay. he, uh, they, um, he's the one who recommends that he goes out to the cowboy. They say his name oh, okay. in that scene. And I okay. believe it's the same name. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And we get, um, this is the girl for the sixth time. Uh, and you know, he also does another lean over the shoulder, lawning look at Betty again. And Betty's got to scoot. She just remembers she's got this thing. She's got to do with her friend. And like again, in this back and forth, I mentioned it earlier, the fucking pores on the faces in 4k are just, you could fall inside of them. They look so huge. It's so crisp. Has so many close-ups. 
of just mm-hmm. like somebody making a weird face and the camera's like just right there. Yeah, it mm-hmm. looks it looks so good in the blue. And I'm one to talk because I have massive pores <laughs> as well. But <laughs> it's just so noticeable and uh, just gorgeous. At some day, at some point in history, you know, we're going to be throwing out all these discs and we're going to have 8K media and yep. we're all going to be talking shit about what we just saw. But, um, you know, in the meantime, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And yet another good reason for the continued use of film for uh, shooting movies, right? <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. we'll be doing all the bitching that we do about the uh, the Star Wars prequels, about how shitty they tend to look in 4K uh, with stuff like this, if that's not the case. Um, so Betty's got a scoot, um, and she goes and picks up Rita, and they're going to go check out the, um, you know, the address the, of the only Di- Diane Selwyn that we can find. I, you know, I, I didn't mention earlier when Rita has this revelation that Diane could be her, that just somehow the last name pops into her head. Yeah, it's it's like it's, she sees the name tag on the waitress at the mm-hmm. Winkies and it like triggers a memory for her and she remembers the name Diane Selwyn. Right. So they get to the apartment and they see this old car sitting outside with a couple of, you know, guys that look like heavies and sunglasses and, you know, um they kind of boss around the cab driver. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this, yeah, there's nothing like trying to boss around a cab driver. Like you see in the movies, you're like, <laughs> don't stop, you know, turn here. And you know, all that shit. It's yeah. I mean, I, I think it goes back to, again, this is very dreamlike. This is very, you know, very movie. Like it's a very yes. tropey. Yes, exactly. What, Many, many tropes can we pull from all sorts of things because that's what somebody's dream of a situation like this would probably be, right? Um, and here's where I write down something about uh, pay attention to the haircuts. TV pilot versus reshoots. Yes. Not Diane and Joe, the inept hit, hitman, you know, versus their you know, alter egos later on because they knock on the door of Diane's apartment and this lady answers who is not Diane. And when we see her later in the film, her hair is very, very different. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually the mark of a reshoot and very clearly the mark of a reshoot in this film, even though six months later, (laughs) yes, even though they are supposed to clearly be different people. And a lot of this was something else. Um, Yeah. I, it's very noticeable upon uh, many rewatches just how different the haircuts are. Uh, So we find out that uh, Diane and this lady switched apartments. Is that a thing? I it's, it's so weird. um, And I can't, even when we see it happens again later, it's so weird. I don't know. I've never heard of it before. I don't know why it's a thing. Like, yeah, and, uh, it's so very I know strange. What, I guess, I guess because of what we're going to see later, I guess I always interpreted it that later they had also switched departments, but that I don't think that is what's happening later on. And so this is sort of like, well, we'll get into later. I think this is sort of like just a made-up thing of why they find this person there, but I don't know yeah. why. I, it's so weird. I, 
I, I, I feel like it's maybe more like somebody moving out after a bad breakup type of thing. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's very strange though. Um, and it's weird how she, she mentions that they switched apartments and that she hasn't seen her in a while. And she just kind of looks off to the side and she's major pregnant pause. And all right, well, she's going to go with them to Diane's apartment because she still has some of her stuff. And once again, somebody living in LA, who's just going to leave her door open while she goes to do this. And then she hears yeah. her phone ringing it's like, yeah, I got to get that. You guys go on ahead. I'll catch up with you. And, you know, they they, they move on. And, uh, again, they kind of Nancy Drew slash Scooby-Doo this shit. And um, Betty decides to do a little bit of light B&E. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. Um, whenever Betty's trying to do anything that is going to ultimately uncover more of who Rita is. Rita constantly tries to stop her from doing so. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, this most, what, what I've been doing for these shows is I will watch the film to be able to, you know, just kind of enjoy it and, you know, just be able to just take it in in you know, one or two sittings and then go back and rewatch it to, take some notes for the episode. Right. And I think this was the first time that I've really noticed this, that, um, you know, Rita is just adamant that now let's, She's let's not do this. Hesitant to keep the yeah. investigation going forward. And it's also like, um, they always need to work together. Like they can't just like, she can't just go do it off on her own. She always needs Rita to come help her with the thing. Mm -hmm. Like they're dependent on each other. Yeah. And you know, for probably many reasons at this point. Um, and the, she helps her climb inside finally. And Betty unlocks the door and it's clear that, uh, God, it smells like somebody died in here. Um, you know, because yeah. and uh, they go in, there's a horrible smell and they slowly make their way through this dark apartment and push open a door and see somebody laying in the bed. And it's right as they round the corner of the bed to see this horrible dead for multiple days face that the lady from Diane's old apartment knocks on the door, scaring the shit out of them. And Rita, you know, tries to scream Betty covers her mouth so that they're not found out. And they kind of wait for this lady to go away. And when she does leave, they come running out of this apartment and the great like overlaid shots of yeah. just her having her freak out. I, it's and like all the, the sound is complete. She's screaming, but you can't hear anything. Yeah. It's, it's such an effective scene. It's. It's yeah. Yep. And then we go to, you know, what is, you know, the most normal reaction to finding a dead body, uh, especially of somebody who you thought you might be, you know, trying to cut all your hair off. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. Um, so Betty tells her, hey, I know what you're trying to do. I'm going to help you. And we cut to, you know, is it a wig? I don't know, because, uh, you know, it's it's wig time in this movie uh, yep. for real. And, you know, you get this um, 
you know, cute little blonde wig that they throw on Rita. And it's like, it's like Betty continues to try to groom her to be in some ways more like her or just, I I don't know. But, uh, you know, they figure, Hey, this will kind of help keep you hidden. If there's people out to kill you or whatever, at least that's what I'm trying to pick up from this. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is that the direction? I think that is the intent because she says like you don't have to wear it inside the apartment or whatever. But it's it is obviously as you get into more about what the movie actually is, it is something with a double meaning. But yeah, the yep. the, the literal intention is yeah, so that you can pretend to be a different person and nobody right. they're looking for this dark haired person, but you're a blonde now. Yep, and so you know the deeper we move into this at this point the more wooden and stilted Rita's dialogue becomes, um, you know, she is absolutely becoming this doll for Betty to play with and control at this point. And this is where, you know, she invites her into bed because she doesn't have to sleep on the couch and blah, blah, blah. Um, and Rita takes off this towel and just climbs right on in. And before you know it, we've got sexy times and it's the love scene is very very awkward but that score is phenomenal it yeah uh it's the, the score is re- like all the music in this movie is so incredible yep and it, it elevates what would otherwise be like a really dumb awkward love scene yeah. into something far more powerful at this point. I, you know, I don't find it so awkward. Well, I mean, it is initially awkward because of, I mean, it kind of should be, right? It's these two... Yeah. I mean, in, in the context of the film, it's these two women, like, discovering their sexuality and stuff, and it is sort of awkward. Like, you know, this is apparently the first time either of them has slept with another woman. But right. uh, I do I do find it to be, like, really well-directed in a very, like, tender love scene. I really like it. Yeah, um, I, maybe it's the dialogue in it that just takes yeah. me out of it a little yeah. bit. The, the, but, dialogue, uh, the dialogue is very silly. The uh, have you ever done this before? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The amnesiac says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they all well, and we get this. I, I'm what is it? I'm falling in love with you from Betty to Rita yeah. or, or something along those lines. And, um, you know, they, 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 they cut away to them sleeping and holding hands and Rita just starts talking in her sleep all of a sudden. So uh, she's sleeping with her eyes open. Well, her eyes pop open eventually during this, but oh, she's is is clearly, is? yeah, but clearly is still asleep until, you know, Betty really wakes her up. But, you know, Silencio repeated over and over and, and no Ibanda, you know, there is no band. Um, and when she finally knocks her out of it, uh, Rita's like, you know, go with me somewhere now. You know, it's, it's, it's two, it's two o'clock. It's two o'clock in the morning. You know, now, right now. And it cuts to them piling into a cab and it's, the, the different shots of the streets as they're driving along. I think every time I see this film, I find it just more and more unsettling. Yeah. I, I, like, I don't know what it, it is about it. starts off with that shot of them on like the corner waiting for the taxi. And yeah. And the camera's them. kind of following them and it almost feels like they're being followed. This is <laughs> um, from this point 
forward. I mean, really, from the point time they find the body, the camera starts doing some really strange things. Because obviously, mm-hmm. you get that weird like multi-picture effect. But yeah, like all these scenes have this like push forward to them, or the camera starts breaking up in a really weird way. Mm-hmm. And then actually, um, my my favorite bit of camera work in the movie is when like they, um, they get to the club, and it starts off with that really long shot in the alleyway. And then the, the it's like it's oh. draped in blue. It's this amazing co- like the composition. And we incredible. get the evil dead cam. Yeah, and then it just <laughs> uh, it's so like it's so unsettling. It's it's amazing. Yeah. It's like yes. that, that that shot right there is my favorite thing in the movie. Yeah, I I love that. I love that so much. And it just it goes all the way till it's like mashed into this blue door of the club. Yeah, and then they're walking into this theater. And the guy on the stage is saying everything that Rita was saying in her sleep, which is, you know, unsettling it's, enough. It's, it's Club Silencio, which is what she yes. was saying earlier. Yeah. And I noticed this for the very first time in this rewatch. Holy shit. That's Ronette Pulaski and Laura Palmer in the audience. Really? Yes. I didn't see that. Oh, Yes. They're uncredited, but they're absolutely sitting there. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Because I, I w- was watching it last night. I was thinking, like, I wonder who's in the audience. And I looked up and see if, like, there were some credits for the people in the audience, and I didn't see any. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, my God. I lost my shit when I finally saw it. Because uh, Cheryl Lee, you know, she's fairly iconic look, right? <laughs> Ronette, uh, I, I can't think of the actress's name, but maybe less so to me. But, um, and I'm like... Oh my God, that was fucking Cheryl Lee, right? And I, I, I look up, you know, is Laura Palmer in the Club Silencio audience? And I immediately find a Screen Rant article about it. And I'm oh. like, yep, it's her and Renette Pulaski. And there's apparently a lot of conjecture on the internet about whether or not they are their characters from Twin Peaks. That's, that's interesting. Yes, because this could be, you know, another wing of the Black Lodge, perhaps. Yeah. This theater, which would kind of make sense considering how weird and, you know, just all the shit that seems to happen in it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. So um, I would like to read more into this. I'm very curious to hear what you have to say after you do so. But um yeah, uh, and then we get this interesting little bit of performance art from here. It's all recorded, um, and y- y- you hear it in you know both English, well English, Spanish, and French, and you know they just kind of continue on. This guy comes out with a muted trumpet and plays a little bit, and then it's clear that it was actually a recording and he's not actually playing and like the things he's saying are like obviously very important like uh i mean noe banda right there is no band you're hearing all this music Mm -hmm. but there is nobody actually here playing music Uh, he says it's all an illusion um and he's done yeah and then everything shakes and he disappears in a cloud of smoke and while this is happening uh you know betty is shaking just uncontrollably and like rita is trying to keep her held down in her seat I love, the, I love the shot of him disappearing because he doesn't just like disappear like he like fades off the screen. It's yes. so cool looking. 
Yes, it's very, very cool. And then we get Rebecca Del Rio with her cover of Roy Orbison's Crying. Um, holy shit. So good. Oh, my it's God. It's big. so good. Big emotion. I, I love the story behind this, how David Lynch was like somewhere. Was it Nashville or Memphis or one of these places where, you know, he just happened to be there where she was and she while well, he recorded her singing the song unbeknownst to her and i think largely that is the recording that yeah, is heard that in, the is the recording that's in the movie yeah, it's it's it was so like um there he says he talks about it in the interview on the on the okay. Criterion edition where like he has essentially a music agent who just works for him and is just like hey um he basically got a call. He's like, hey, you need to come down and check this out. There's this person here that you should go check out. And he goes down there and yeah, and just like recorded the thing, saw the performance, blown away by it. And then later was just like, oh, we should put that in the movie. Like, like, and I mean, that that kind of like the way he um, he he's like really obsessed with like putting musicians in his movies and mm-hmm. stuff and like finding all these like oh the the music in Twin Peaks like some of like well there's that I was just I gonna say it. Twin Peaks the return basically almost every single episode yeah. ends with a performance at the Roadhouse including one from Rebecca Del Rio at one point yeah. or another um yeah, yeah. So, uh the, the I love the way they incorporate this stuff and this performance is so good it's, oh it's haunting yeah it, you, it's you, just you watch it in its entirety. You just sit down and you listen to the song and mm-hmm. I mean, you make I, sure your yeah. speakers are up. Yes. You don't care have, about I your neighbors really at good, that point. I have a great, good stereo system with the good speakers and mm-hmm. the, the, the criterion edition. It sounds incredible. It's Absolutely. So good. Yeah. And so they are feeling all the emotions as they're listening to this and they both are just crying their eyes out. And Betty grabs her purse for probably a tissue. And as she opens it up, she finds this big blue box mm-hmm. of the same shade as the funky blue key from earlier in the film. And well, as all this is happening, Rebecca passes out on stage, but the song continues because again, it's all a recording and uh, Cookie DMC comes back along with another guy, uh, and they just pick her up and drag her off the stage. And uh, there's also this lady in a theater box. Um, you know, she's the Abe Lincoln of this story, I guess. I don't know. Blue but, hair. Uh, she's just there. Mm-hmm. Just kind of staring through all this. I just, you know, bring her up for obvious reasons. We'll get back to her. But. Uh, we, we cut to Betty and Rita heading back home. And I'm sure it's, you know, probably about 3.34 in the morning at this point. And they enter the apartment and, you know, they're like, okay, let's figure out what's going on with this box. And, you know, Betty goes and, you know, puts the bag down on the bed. It cuts over to Rita going into the closet for the hat box. They come back to the bed. Betty's not there. And it's, Rita's like, it's not, it's not a cut, right? Like Betty sets it no. down, she walks off camera and then she disappears. Yeah. Yeah. She essentially disappears when the camera moves away from her. Um, I love shit like that, by the way. Um, it's so cool. It's this, this is, this sequence is weird. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because Rita's like a hey, Betty. 
you know, cause she was right behind her and now she's gone. And you know, donde esta? Uh, and uh, Rita, you know, she's a little freaked out, but she gets the key out. She opens up that box. This, I feel like David Lynch built this box himself. He had to have, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. The box is so like, it's, it's the layers of the inside yeah. of the lid. I, I love it. And it I'm sure you've seen lip and it's, mm-hmm. oh man, it's so cool. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of videos of him doing woodworking and stuff. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it just, it makes sense that I think he would have built this himself, but she opens this thing up and the camera goes into the box because it's clearly swallowing us up and the box falls to the ground with a big old thunk and Rita's now gone as well. And we get Betty's aunt Ruth walking back into the room because she heard a thunk on the floor. The camera moves down. Nothing is there. This Everything is, the, is one gone. Of the weirdest bits of the movie because it's one of the parts that like especially as we get we're gonna start getting deep into what's going on uh oh, this sure. is this scene nobody ever talks about this scene that the aunt is in the apartment again and then like it does like it cuts away and it cuts back like she walks out of the room and it does a cut and then we're back in the apartment again for a little bit of time mm-hmm. it's so weird like the construction of sequences it's just like Yep. And, yeah. And uh, I'm, I guess I'll say it now before I forget, but uh, I'm curious if the, the essentially the person who is Aunt Ruth to Betty in this narrative of the first part of the room is somebody who, as Betty is taken out of this is kind of coming back to the real world and sort of is their own person again. And that's why nothing is there. That's an interesting interpretation. Hmm. It's, it's just kind of how I was thinking of it in this rewatch. And that's, that's the fun of a lot of David Lynch films. I think there's something new to pick up and there's all sorts of different ways because he is notorious for being like extra, extra cagey for, you know, what his film actually means. He doesn't do commentaries. He likes to do single chapters on a film release for, you know, media so that you can't skip from chapter to chapter. It encourages you to sit and watch the entire thing in one go as one probably should for a lot of films. Um, totally not respecting your time, but, um, (laughs) yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, but yes, we, we, we cut from that to, uh, Hey, pretty girl time to wake up. Cowboys back. Cowboys back. And, uh, Diane wakes up with slightly different hair now. And, um, well, it's Naomi Watts. Betty is now Diane. And there's like a very, very loud knock at the door. And she just groggily gets out of bed, throws on a robe. And it's the lady who she switched apartments with. Yeah, the lady from apartment 12. Yes. Um, 
you know, asking about getting her stuff and her lamp and her dishes and all that. And her hair is super different at this point. And as the camera tracks past the coffee table, we see the blue key, a different blue key. Yeah. Uh, this, sitting this one there. is very regular looking. It's just blue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the sake of timelines and the story, it's important to notice that the key is there. Um, so lady from apartment 12 gets her shit, um, notices that her ashtray is there and, you know, gets that too. And Diane's like, just please, for the love of God, get the fuck out of here. And finally leaves, goes over to the kitchen. Couple of beats and realizes, oh, Camilla's here. And guess who Camilla is this time? Camilla, you came back. Yes. And it, it cuts over. You see Rita as now Camilla. And then it cuts back to Naomi Watts just losing her damn mind. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird, you know, her kind of hyperventilating, crying her eyes out, seeing Camilla again. But then all of a sudden she's at a different angle and calm again. And, you know, this is where she decides to, you know, make some coffee. And it's such a weird cut from her. They're on the grounds in the filter, firing up one of those tiny little shitty three cup coffee makers that I think we all had in college. And, um, and then this kind of weird snap to the coffee just about being done. Yeah. She fills up this super cool brown diner style coffee mug that I wish I, I had one of those same mug from the Winkies before. Because of course it is right. (laughs) And she fills that up and there's this cool cut of her walking towards the couch. We move over the couch. There's Rita naked on the couch and it cuts to Diane or not Diane. Yeah. Diane and not Rita. Camilla, see, I, I can keep this shit straight. Um, but she's climbing over the couch and it's no longer coffee in her hand, but like a bourbon or something. It's some kind of brown liquor yeah. uh, in a tumbler there. And, mm-hmm. and more sexy times. Um, except, um, you know, Camilla, eh, she's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this and Diane gets a little handsy with her and she's like, no. And she's kind of wanting to end this thing. You get this comment from Diane about Tim, isn't it? And we cut from there to the set of a film. And it's Camilla and Adam in a car, and it's time to get real comfortable. It's, it, I don't know, it's, it's, it's creepy because it's Adam, the director, trying to show this actor how he wants him to be with Camilla, but he's clearly just using the opportunity to get extra friendly with Camilla. Meanwhile, Diane is watching this whole thing. It's... I mean, think of it this way. It's basically him cuckolding her in the way that he was in her dream. Yeah. 
Yeah. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> Lights! Ah, <laughs> uh, it's such a... He, yeah, he, he does, like, the, the clear out the set. And um, mm-hmm. uh, Camilla asks if Diane could stay there, and then she gives Diane this, like, weird look. Yeah, thing, like, I, please. Like, um, watch this. Yeah, like, like, like uh, that, that is one thing from, from the, this section of the film is that, like, um, Camilla seems to really, like, enjoy making Diane yeah. really uncomfortable, especially around Adam. It's, yeah. yeah, it's I don't know if that's her being her like purposefully trying to make Diane feel bad or her doing it in a way to ensure that she drives her away. It's maybe it's a little bit of both. I, I take it I, I take it as more as I'm not I'm not sure if it's actually Camilla's intentions. It's more of the way like Diane is interpreting what's happening. Yeah, and that's another thing that we have to consider because there's a whole lot of unreliable narrator type of yes. shit going on here. Uh, this is all from Diane's perspective, and she is clearly fucked in the head in this film. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um so this part ends and we get this little fight between Diane and Camilla where it's clear that um, Diane's going to have the last word in this story, right? God damn it. And, you know, she basically forces Camilla out of her place after they've had this fight. And then we get the incredibly uncomfortable masturbation scene where apparently... um. David Lynch had to put like this little tent over Naomi Watts head so that she wouldn't have to see any of the crew around her as she acted this out. But she is just violently masturbating and sobbing. And the shot of her perspective, looking at the fireplace, uh, the stonework, um, just coming in and out of focus like crazy yeah, it's, it's more of the, that, that like really strange camera work that keeps yeah, showing up. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's intense um, and horribly uncomfortable. Yeah. And then we uh, move from there to after a she, brief little. She hears the phone ring, right? And then she like. Yes, her head whips to the side and it's the phone with the red lamp and the ashtray. And she's all dressed up and she slowly walks over to the phone again. Very, very different hair from when she was Betty. Um, And she picks it up and it's Camilla and hey, the car's outside and you're coming, right? It's a big deal. And then we get the, you know, basically uh, Diane living through the beginning of the film. Yep. We're back on Mulholland Drive. And they stop the car and we get the whole, what are you doing? We don't stop here. And instead of a, you know, silenced pistol, it's, hey, it's a surprise. And it's Camilla coming out of the woods to lead Diane on a little walk. And um, yeah, I know Camilla can lead me through the woods anytime (laughs) because holy shit, she is stunning. And again, the score in this scene is just crazy impactful. Um, 
And she just walks her up the hill to this house. And we, we kind of shift from the crazy powerful synth score to, you know, the more, um, Audrey Horn style, Angelo, you know, the snaps and everything. And, you know, we're on the pool deck and, uh, you know, (laughs) Adam comes out, he's got drinks and the super awkward toast. And, you know, again, Camilla, you know, kind of forcing Diane to watch but you know, like you said, this this very well could be Diane's perspective of how this is playing out. Uh, we get the reintroduction of Coco, um, and then He's we move Adam's mom this time. Around. Yes, and we move on to one of the most uncomfortable dinners ever because there's nothing like sitting through an awkward dinner with your ex and her new beau. Um, we get Angelo, we get the other Camilla, and we get the cowboy during all of this, along with uh, similar descriptions of, you know, coming from Deep River, Ontario, uh, after winning a jitterbug contest, how her aunt left her some money, blah, blah, blah. Um, basically laying out most of the points of the beginning of this film and you know hopefully at this point you know everything's starting to click for somebody watching this film as far as what they've actually been witnessing at least on second viewing i hope it is but um yeah we get we get all this stuff and it's clear that uh, they're about to announce their engagement and uh, betty or Betty Diane is just (laughs) losing her shit at this point. She's, you know, clearly just tearing up while watching all the shit happening around here. And then when she just can't take it anymore, we get this crash of dishes and we're back in the winkies. Yep. And this time we get Betty, the waitress instead of Diane. So (laughs) it's, it's it's real it's a real mind fuck the first time you watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh but it's so fun. So good. Uh and you know, she serves her some coffee, asks if there's anything else they can get, and it's Diane meeting with Joe the Hitman, and his hair is very different now because of course this is you know reshoot time, right? And um she pulls out the headshot of Camilla this time played by Laura Haring uh, along with the words this is the girl for the seventh time in the film um and she's clearly hiring a hit on her ex-girlfriend at this point um yeah I, when he tells her that when the job is done you're going to find this blue key here um and then when she asks, what is it open? What is your take on that? Is his laugh more of a, what do you fucking think this means? It's just a sign that the job is done. Or is it supposed to be something more meaningful than that? I think it is supposed to be something for something more meaningful. I'm not entirely sure what his meaning is there. But um, I've heard some 
different theories that are like extremely complicated but i do believe that like the, the key we are you are supposed to come up with some kind of idea of what the key opens i think that is sort of important yeah. i'm not totally sure why like i don't have my mind completely wrapped around every part of this movie i have sort of like general feelings about how i'm supposed to interpret it and i'm honestly probably gonna watch this movie like five more times this year here's the thing brandon um i have watched this film over and over for over 20 years now and i don't know that there's necessarily supposed to be more meaning to what that key is it could just be you know pretentious david lynch bullshit Um, so so, so my my sort of general view about the film in general and it's why i like it and it's why i've really been getting into david lynch was that i i think that he doesn't intend meaning there i think he intends you to bring meaning to it and that's what i love about the film that's what absolutely I love about all this stuff is that he's laying out all these things for you to grasp onto i think it's you you've just listened to essentially a plot synopsis of the movie and it's obviously extremely yeah. confusing it's less about the plot of the movie and it's more like an emotional journey. Yeah, it's about the feeling and, that you yeah. interpret from the film and that that's totally cool. And people are going to take that in different ways because people are very human and they will. And that that's, that's fucking perfect. I, yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, so we cut from here back to the man in back of this place, uh, kind of playing with the blue box and he just drops it into this gross paper bag and then drops it on the ground. And we get the creepy old people. Yeah. The old people turn tiny and they run out of the box Mm -hmm. and they get the, you know, super pitched up voices laughing maniacally it must have been so fun for these actors to just like run around and go ah! <laughs> yes i love it yes it's so good and you know we get back to betty sitting on the couch after she had poured that cup of coffee from maybe mm-hmm. about half an hour ago and she's staring at the blue key on her coffee table and you know i just have here in my notes coffee and catharsis more like raging guilt um because i i think the old folks really are kind of manifestations of her guilt in some ways because all of a sudden you thought the knocks from earlier in the film were loud but the pounding on the door that starts you know kind of distorted and almost like drowned out like you've got noise canceling cans on or something like that um as these old people crawl under the door and the old man helps the little old lady back up and they laugh with each other. And all all of this is kind of rising and the knocks are rising in volume and the lights are starting to flash. And all all of a sudden, you know, here come the olds because Diane is screaming and these old folks are laughing maniacally and waving their... Yes. Yeah. Basically chasing her through her apartment and essentially Diane's guilt chases her to the bed and she decides to end it all. She fishes a revolver out of the drawer and puts one in her head and the smoke similar to the smoke from club silencio just rises all around her 
And, you know, we get the, the swelling score and the shot of Betty and Rita in her blonde wig, kind of just smiling and just lit in this heavenly glow. It's almost like the end of uh, Firewalk with me when Laura dies and there's the angel floating above and, you know, she's crying because she finally has the release from her situation. And in some ways she, she knows she's dead, but she has the hope that she has in some ways been saved. Right. Yeah. And you know, if it hasn't been abundantly clear from listening to a lot of this, or at least from a couple of rewatches, uh, of this film yourself, uh, Essentially, the first, you know, two thirds of this film have been sort of a fever dream that Diane has been experiencing in the last moments as she pulled this trigger and killed herself of a better life for herself, of a world in which she and Camilla could have been happy together, in which Camilla loved her and was never going to leave her. And... We, the score kind of wraps up and we get the lady with the blue hair in the theater box who whispers one last time, silencio. And then we get credits. Yeah. Fucking a. It's, <laughs> it's a, it is a wild film. Um, so that was like the most basic interpretation of the plot right there. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of your other theories as far as what okay. could be going on? So, so I, th I find like, obviously there is like dreams are an extremely important idea in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I, but I do find it the general quote unquote theory or ex like if you pull up an explanation explaining Mulholland drive, what you're going to get is going to be the first part of the movie is a dream. The second part of the movie is real life. That's what they're going to say is like, that's the meaning of the movie. And I think that is mostly, generally speaking, true because it's obviously intended that way when you watch it. But I think it is a little reductionist to just sort of boil it down to that. Um, one, because I think it's pretty bold to say that the second half of the movie is real life. Um, it's because it's, it's very also, much a fever dream in and of itself yeah, it, it does not operate on it, it continues the weird dream logic this weird mm -hmm. listing through scenes they're not presented in order um it's very clear that like naomi watts is somewhat like being dragged through these scenes like they keep she will like hear a noise in one scene and she will jerk her head over to the side and mm -hmm. she's in a different place so um, I think that the movie has this, um, I think the first part of the movie is not like a literal dream. I think it's more of interpret of like, you know, the Hollywood dream. It's not like a literal sleeping dream. Right. Um, I have a feeling that because the movie starts with the old people and ends with the old people and it seems that the old people come out of the box, I sort of feel like at the end of the film, they're like dragging her back into the dream. You know what I mean? That's sort of kind of where I'm at with it right now. Um, but there's there's so many different parts of this movie. And then, like, um, one big thing that I picked up on the last time that I watched it last night was 
the sequence in Club Silencia with the song and that, you know, it's all an illusion, mm-hmm. but that the illusion keeps going on like after the singer passes out or dies and she's dragged off the dream, the illusion keeps going. Mm-hmm. I think, I think this might, I think, I think the movie is sort of intended to be like a loop and that like, it's going to, it keeps happening forever. It doesn't matter that Diana has died. Like it keeps going. I still don't know what the cowboy's about. Why is the cowboy? There's this weird part in between the dreams and the cowboy's there. I don't think yeah. people talk about the part in between the dream enough, you know, because that, yeah. that's what really confounds me. Is... Well, and that's, you know, I, I had brought about, uh, about, uh, you know, aunt Ruth, you know, yeah. just suddenly appearing again after this portion seems to have ended but still kind of seeming to be the same. I don't know. Um, also, I, I like, think the cowboy says that like he t- says it to Adam. You'll see me one more time. If you do good, you'll see me two more times. If you do bad. But uh, we're the ones who see the cowboy twice. Right. Yep, we see him when he says, wake up, pretty girl. We see him at the dinner party. Yeah. So what does that say? Yeah. Because we're the only people who see the cowboy two more times. Maybe he's talking to us in that scene up on the top of the hill in the corral. Hmm. There's so much about this film that you can really dig into. And it's like, oh, man, I, it's so I'm much. sure there are off the rails theories about oh, it yeah. as well. Like this is, you know, David Lynch's, um, basically him, uh, releasing his guilt about helping to cover up the uh, moon landing, um, <laughs> being a hoax. Wait, no, that's, that's a totally different film. <laughs> um, but, uh, and but what, yeah, the, the craziest thing about it is, is that the none of the stuff in the ending, all the things that people like because people will bring up like anything that happens in the dream and they'll be like, well, this is why that's happening in the dream. Like the scene with the hitman, people will say, like, that's happening in the dream because she wants to imagine that the hitman is bad at his job. So maybe he doesn't end up killing Camilla. Hmm. But the thing is, is that none of that was written with the intention of this being a dream. That's all stuff that David Lynch came up with after. In one day. In one, in, <laughs> in, in a night, just through a meditation. Oh my God. That's what I, that's, that's one thing that's like really, truly amazing about this movie was that he was able to put this whole ending together with it where it fits cohesively. And if you think about it, you know, there are people who will literally just like, everything connects in a way that if you're just doing the whole this is a dream. This is a reality. It makes perfect sense. And if you want to yeah. dig much deeper into that, it still all makes sense. It's, it's, it's a brilliant piece of piece of work. Absolutely. It is. Um, it, I, I think the only David Lynch film that I have never seen is the straight story. And it is his most like paint by numbers, like drama that, yeah is like a fairly straightforward story about a man traveling a couple of states away, driving a lawnmower to go to his brother's funeral. And it's got the usual David Lynch grotesques in it. And that's all I know of it. But everything else that he's done, it's like, even fucking Dune, right? The sleeper must awaken. And 
<laughs> there's there's so much like dream logic going yeah. on and it's like you said you recently saw a racer head right yes that is a film that i feel like should be required viewing for every you know person who's about to become a parent um <laughs> yeah. not necessarily in a <laughs> fuck you way but um it just just make sure you're good for this <laughs> it's yeah it's I, I I I need to watch the rest of his movies and stuff. I'm really like, um, like I said, I've seen this movie four times this year. Uh, I plan on watching it several other times this year. I do think this is one of my favorite movies right now. I think I'd probably put this like top five favorite movies now. I um, yeah. Oh, it's very... easy to see why people just extol the virtues of Mulholland Drive, and it is not a film for everyone. That is for sure. Yeah. It's you know there were plenty of critics that were very harsh on this in its initial release. Um, and I say it's, know, it's probably not a movie for everyone. I understand yeah. why some like a general audience probably wouldn't like this movie. It yeah. totally makes sense, but it, oh, it's it is very a much art house fever dream, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it, but yeah. it's, it's a movie that since I watched it, I haven't really stopped thinking about it. I don't think I've ever apart with, you know, my favorite movie of all time is Blade Runner. It's a movie that I watched several <laughs> times a year ever since that I saw it, like, over 10 years ago i think i talk about the movie a lot i think this is one of the only movies where i've had like really wanted to dive deep into the movie and think about it as much as blade runner um so yeah i it's a fantastic film i'm glad you think so this this is has been very fun because this is a film worth discussing with friends it's absolutely worth pouring over because it's one of those films that you kind of get out of it what you put into it to a certain degree and yeah i would say it's it's also it's also one of those situations like i've seen some some very very in-depth theory videos and stuff and i do think that it is one of those things where it's um what you say about it uh says more about you than it does about david lynch you know that's that's probably very true (laughs) because <laughs> you'll see these theories where they're, they're extremely deep about like, um, you know, um, sort of uh, exploitation of actresses in Hollywood and stuff like that. And maybe some like Harvey Weinstein type things going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and the people will talk about it and they'll be like, David Lynch is doing this with this scene. And David Lynch is doing that with this scene. It's like, no, I think your brain is doing that with that scene. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very, very likely. Um, I, I think <laughs> super top level. He could have been making some of those commentaries, but he's not calling anybody out specifically. He's not. None of that is happening in this film. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, no, but yeah, yeah. It's um very much both a love letter and a condemnation of Hollywood right here, all in one. And that's cool by me. I, I would love to see him do another feature film at some point yeah. in his life. I don't know that that's ever going to happen. He is content to do a daily weather report on YouTube. And I'm also Those okay with that. Go Aren't they good? Them. They're, so, They're so good. It's it just every once in a while, I'll need like a little bit of a, you know, a pick me up in my day. And I'll just go and watch his weather report and watch it's him. July leave. 14th. It's sunny outside. 
Clear skies, clear skies and sunshine all the way. (laughs) Or he'll lace into Putin for like a minute and a half because, you know, (laughs) I'm surprised we got this far before I I started doing it. I love David Lynch's voice so much. Oh, he's so good. I I really like to imagine like I would love so much like there's uh, on the Criterion Blu-ray. There is like um, there's some like on set footage of him like directing and stuff mm-hmm. and it like but like he he's very cautious about like letting them near him while he's talking to actors and stuff i would really like to just be on set to hear david lynch like just or even just like describing what happens in a scene okay so you're going to drink the coffee and then you're going to spin out the coffee and then you're gonna scream <laughs> yes please <laughs> yes please could you imagine having lunch with him at the counter at a Bob's big boy. Oh man. I w- I would love to hang out with David Lynch. The weird thing is that like anytime you hear people talk about him, he's apparently surprisingly normal to just hang out with. Oh yeah. He's supposed to be like the sweetest gentleman in the entire yeah. world. And just like, just like a normal guy who makes really fucking weird movies. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? And I know there have been some interesting edits that have shown us what this could have been like. Can you imagine if he didn't do Dune and did Return of the Jedi after all? You know, that would have been really, really interesting. Uh, I don't think (laughs) it would be as wild as people. No, no, because I think it would have been incredibly studio controlled to the point. Just like like a. Lucas essentially used Mark Quand as a ghost director. And I oh, have yeah. a feeling that it probably would have been a similar thing with David Lynch. Um, and also, like, I, the only reason that he was even, like, in contention for it was just because he wasn't a union director. Yeah, and people liked his, uh, you know, version of The Elephant Man. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, it's really good. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Anthony Hopkins yeah. is outstanding in that film. The, the makeup in that's fantastic. Invented mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, special the the makeup uh, Oscar because yeah. people were so upset that he didn't win an Oscar for that. Yeah, it's uh he can direct normal stuff like yeah. the elephant just, man is surprisingly normal. <laughs> yeah, he's just like when when you get him to make his movie, he's like, okay, well, it's gonna be fucking weird. Ah. Uh. Well, I, I got to say, I'm super stoked to hear that that uh, Lost Highway release is no longer a rumor and it is absolutely happening. That's yeah, I exciting. Need to watch that again, I haven't seen that one since um, probably around 2012, 2013, when I was watching uh, so watching uh, Twin Peaks for the first time. Back in the day um, when I lived in the Ann Arbor area around undergrad um, they had at the local mall, um, a kind of art house movie theater in the mall and it's weird. They would always do like, you know, your typical indie films, but occasionally they would do like super cool double features. And I was lucky enough to go see lost highway back to back with wild at heart. Oh, I haven't seen Wild at Heart yet. That's good. That's oh, I need to watch that one. I, it like is, I, said, I haven't seen I, most of his movies. I haven't seen yet. It's a treat. Nick Cage and Laura Dern are fan fucking tastic. It's such a love letter to the Wizard of Oz and Elvis. Sounds good. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
with many, many David Lynch tropes throughout. And it's, yeah, I, I will love to hear what you have to say once you do finally get to see that film. Um, any final thoughts on Mulholland Drive? Yeah, I, I have a question for you, because, like, do you consider this a horror movie? Because this is a horror I mean, movie podcast. Um, I do. And, yeah. um, I, I, I do. It's absolutely more in the thriller camp, but I consider thrillers horror films. Um, it's there. There is plenty of horror to be found in this film. Um, just from you know, just horrific situations from Diane's just I think the hatred of her situation and the horrific things that she has done. And, you know, even in trying to dream up this other reality, if that is what it is, she still can't get away from horrible shit happening to her. It's, it all comes full circle at some point or another. Bad things are going to happen to this woman. Yeah, it's it's, it's it, there is this like overwhelming sense of dread. Even when mm-hmm. everything's happy and nice, there's still those shots of the old people just laughing maniacally in the limo and stuff. It's like you know that something isn't right the entire time. And, yes. Yeah, but like I, I was surprised because like I would like it wasn't on my mind at all. Like when we initially talked about doing this podcast, wherever you're like, well, there's some of your favorite horror movies, and we could do Mulholland Drive, and I was like, Mulholland Drive, that was a horror movie podcast. I mean, I'll talk about Mulholland Drive, but that's so weird. Um, yeah, but yeah, I um, guess I I do see it. Like especially like watching it again uh, this time, I was like, yeah, there is really this just like this general. It's it's I'd like if you ask me to describe it, I would never use horror to describe it, but it does have a lot of horror elements. Yeah, yeah, and I'll say there are plenty of people that are like, oh, I don't like scary movies. I don't like horror movies. But then they start listing all these different thrillers and very horror adjacent properties. Silence and it's of like, the Lambs. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs guess, is a horror Guess movie. what? Silence of the Lambs is the most Oscar winning horror film yeah. ever made. Yeah, if you don't think Silence <laughs> at least of the one Lambs of them. is a horror movie, you're dumb. It's, yeah. it's a horror movie. Absolutely it is. Yes. And yeah, there is such an undercurrent of dread running through yeah. this film as well. And I, I, I got to say, David Lynch, when you look at a lot of his works, is like one of the greatest horror movie directors of all time between this and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is straight up horror film. Yes. Uh, and Eraserhead, which is pretty See, damn that, horrifying. That, that, that's another one where it's like people say that and I just I have a hard time calling that one a horror movie because generally know, speaking, man. when I watch the movie, it, I'm not. Care. There's sequences in the movie that are genuinely terrifying, and yet when my I look back at the film, I don't think of it like, oh, I wasn't scared during it. It's like, uh, it's very existential. Know. Oh yeah, it's about the existential dread and horror of becoming a father. It's yeah, it's and it's rough, man. It's um, but yeah, between those and parts of Wild at Heart and Inland Empire, which I. I'm sure I'll have a different interpretation on once I finally get to see it again. And I, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, man, it, he knows what he's doing as far as scaring the socks off of you. And, you know, not necessarily in the typical jump scare, you know, thriller slasher or horror film kind of way, but in just this overall horrific feeling of dread and yeah it's, it's very the the twin peaks thing of it too where twin peaks is a horror series but most of the 
theories whole episodes go by without any scary stuff happening any sort mm-hmm. of like dread going on and stuff but it's mm-hmm. it's and it's all the kooky funny quirky and yeah it, it is that that whole that whole thing about like um what is essentially the, the encompasses all of david lynch which is this um the duality of everyday life right like that mm-hmm. um underneath yeah. life yes is like yeah everything life. that blue velvet is about you know yes. the 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 insects seething beneath the idyllic grass gla- yeah. grass and yeah. yeah that's like that's what all twin peaks is about that's what uh, mm-hmm. a lot of this movie is about and i mean this um I was really surprised when I watched this for the first time, comparing it to Lost Highway, which was one of the only other movies I had seen at the time, where it was like, this is like, it's almost exactly Lost Highway. Like when you break that down like the story. Characters stuff, becoming like, other characters suddenly and, yeah. you know, using that to work through, you know, what they've already experienced or vice somebody versa. Probably and, killed somebody else. It's yeah, it's and I was like, man, it's so weird that like he essentially just did like the same movie back to back and nobody cared. But it's still so different. And it but it, but it is because he keeps doing those. He's he likes to circle around those same themes a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Dude, this was a ton of fun. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this, man. I love talking about this movie. And I, I, yeah. I love talking about movies with you too. We do it a lot on Twitter. It's fun. Yeah, well, we'll get you back for something else sometime. And we'll uh, do a race yeah. head next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Ruckus, where can people find you? Uh, just follow me on Twitter at uh, at Jose Ruckus. Uh, I'll let you know where everything else is after that. <laughs> all right man well again thanks for coming on uh this has been murders with mertens a horror film podcast thank you for letting us tickle your ear holes but uh don't forget to like share subscribe and all that and i'll be back soon enough with another episode but until next time stay spoopy everyone (laughs) 